Welcome. My name is Chris. I'm a pastor here at Redeemer. It's good to see uh, some new faces in the room, see some of our students starting to come back. Uh, next week, they will all be back upon us, I think, a lot of them. Uh, hopefully, if they're planning to go to class on Monday. Um, well, uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but uh, when I was a little kid, my favorite day of the week was Saturday, Saturday morning in particular, because I loved Saturday morning cartoons, right? Uh, because when I was a little kid, there was no cartoon network, right? We, we didn't even have cable when I was a little kid or anything like that. So it was like that was Saturday morning was when you could watch cartoons. And so I look forward to Saturday morning. And my, my, favorite, my favorite show on Saturday morning was the Super Friends. Anybody remember Super Friends? All right. I see a couple nods. That means if you remember that, it means you're old. Uh, just so you know, we're, we're old. We're dating ourselves here. Because uh, that was a show from like the mid-70s through the early 80s. So that's my younger years there. Um, right? And, and so the Super Friends, I, I love that show. And the Super Friends, for those of you who are like under 40, um, <laughs> uh, that was a show that kind of featured a, a team of superheroes, all the DC comic kind of superheroes. So you had like uh, uh, Batman, the Green Lantern, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, and of course... Superman, my favorite. I love Superman. Uh, and they were always protecting and defending the world from this evil group, the Legion of Doom, right? The Legion of Doom. And what was real interesting to me as like a five, six-year-old kid, because I took a lot of time to process and think about these things, uh, was how all the members of the Legion of Doom were like equally matched with like the superheroes on the Super Friends, right? Their powers were like kind of a, a perfect match for one another, <coughs> And none was more so, like, as clearly obvious as Bizarro, right? Anybody remember Bizarro, right? Okay, Bizarro uh, is the antithesis of Superman, right? He is just like a messed up, jacked up, weird, whacked out version of, of Superman. He possesses all the powers of Superman. He has, like, the laser vision. You know, he, he could fly, but he flies all, like, crooked because he's just messed up. Um, he... he, he uh, he, he looks a little bit like Superman, except his face is just all kind of mangled and cracked up and weird looking. Um, and he even wears the Superman suit, except the S is backwards, right? A backwards S. It's so clear that he's meant to be the antithesis of Superman in like every kind of way. It's very clearly portrayed that way. And what you come to find out as you, as you continue to look at Bizarro, right, is that Bizarro possesses all of Superman's strengths and abilities without possessing Superman's heart, right? He doesn't possess Superman's heart. His logic is faulty. He has this broken way of speaking he, that when he talks, and, and his morality is completely backwards, completely backwards. He, he's the ideal of Superman, just warped and twisted and deformed, making him incredibly dangerous. Right, why do I bring up Bizarro? Why do I go way back to 1970s, 1980s cartoons, right? Well, as we walk through the letter of 1 John, we finished that last week, we learned that there was a group of bizarros, right? A group of bizarro teachers and believers who had withdrawn from these churches in the region of Asia Minor, specifically around the, the area of Ephesus there, which we, we know is the, the modern-day nation of Turkey, right? These, these false believers, these false preachers, uh, they possessed many of the gifts Many of the abilities of true pastors, true leaders, true believers in Christ, but they didn't possess their heart. They didn't possess the heart of a true follower of Christ, and that made them 
very, very dangerous. In this second letter of John, he's still addressing the same concern. Uh, only now he's writing to it one specific congregation is what we're going to see. He's writing to one specific local church. And John is going to warn about these bizarro deceivers again and, and give some instruction on how, how to identify them, how, how we should respond to them, all while anchoring that in the sure, unwavering hope that we have in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. So what does that have to do with us? And why do we need to talk about that? Why do we need to look at the letter of Second John if it's written to one specific church like 2,000 years ago? Well, as John says at various points in both of these first two letters, he says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Right? They're already there. They're already there. Jesus said himself, right, false prophets will, will raise up among you. They will rise among you, seeking to lead others astray. Peter says the same thing as he addresses false teachers in his second letter, right? The, the theme is, there will be false teachers. There are false teachers amongst the church. They are already among us. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They are here, right? Some of us know them. Right? They're, they're amongst us within the church. Not, not, we're not talking about non-Christians. We're not talking about people who are, are Muslim or believe other faiths. We're talking about people who claim faith in Jesus, claim to know the God that we worship, the true God, the one true God. Those folks, there are many deceivers amongst us. Many deceivers. And we need to be discerning. Right? There are many bizarros in the church at large. And this letter was for a specific church, but it's also for us. It's also a letter that we need to hear. And just like that church did, I want you to hear this, just like that church would have done about 2,000 years ago, right? we're going to sit and we're going to listen to this entire letter be read. That's what they would have done, right? They received this letter from John. They would have gathered together like this. And they would have listened to the letter be read. And just so you know, if you're like worried, checking the clock, it's like one of the shortest books in the entire Bible, all right? Thirteen verses. So, so let, with that note, let's, let's take a look at our text today, uh, the book of Second John. Yeah, if you turn there in your Bibles, on your apps, it begins on the, these page numbers. We have two different editions of these gray ESV Bibles. They're on your row, uh, so find whichever one is correct for yours. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to take that as a gift. Um, we want you to have a copy to, to read, to study, to know His Word. But let's stand together. Let's hear from His Word. second letter of John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who, all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to sit under your word. Lord, I pray that you would instill within us an increasing hunger for your word. To want to know it for ourselves. To want to abide in the teachings of Christ for ourselves. That we might know you. That we might know better the life that we have through faith in you, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you move in us? Would you equip us with with greater discernment? Would you equip us with a greater understanding of truth, with a greater understanding of love? Help us to love in a way that is informed by your word, in a way that, 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 that communicates the love that you have for us, in a way that is wise and discerning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So John, he he begins this letter, right? He addresses himself as the elder, right? And he writes to the elect lady and her children. Don't get hung up here. John, what he's doing here, he's introducing himself. He's he's writing as a a pastor, as an elder. That's right, pastor, elder, overseer. They're all three the same office role in the church. That's what we see throughout the New Testament. He's writing as a pastor, as one who shepherds and cares for and protects the church as an apostle who's helped plant churches. And he's writing to a specific local church and her members, right? That's the elect lady and her children that he refers to. He's, he's not talking about one lady in the church. He's, he's talking about a single congregation and its members, right? And he signs off the end of the letter. He says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So this sister church, we all say hello, and we wish you well, and we pray for you. That's what he's saying. So he's writing to a specific church, um, and he's writing... Uh, them to help them identify the bizarros, right? To keep them rooted in the hope that they have in the gospel and to give them some instructions on how they are to respond whenever they encounter one of these bizarro deceiver folks coming their way. And this letter, like I said, it's for us as well. We need this word, church. We need it. We desperately need this word. One of the most troubling things to me as, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, is the, the lack of biblical literacy in the church today. Right? You understand this? And really, I should say, in, in the evangelical American church, the Western church, we are biblically illiterate people. Right? Biblically illiterate, and we've become unable to discern the truth from a lie. We do not have the ability... We've, we've become increasingly just biblically illiterate. We've shifted our focus away through the years, right, 
through the last few generations, we have shifted the focus away. In the, I'm not talking about every church. I'm talking about even in the evangelical American church, we shifted that focus away from abiding in the truth of God, from abiding in the Word of God, for knowing the Word of God for ourselves. Right? Instead, we've exchanged it for a bunch of consumeristic programs in the church. Right? Where's the best kids' ministry? Where's the best youth group? Who has the best women's ministry? Who has the best this, whatever, right? And and even in that, we're not concerned about the Word of God present. We're not concerned about the gospel being present. We're concerned about light shows and smoke machines and lots of people gathered together and what moves me, right? And we have become increasingly biblically illiterate people. It's shameful on all of us, right? Right? And because of that, we cannot discern the truth from a lie, right? We are illiterate babes with no discernment, none, right? So much so that you walk into a Christian bookstore, right? And this is why I don't go to Christian bookstores, because I want to like go like Jesus in the temple in there with like Thomas Kincaid paintings flying out the window and Joel Osteen books and all the other like testaments or whatever. Uh, I just want to go nuts because they, it's not Christian. You walk in there and you see right on the shelf, right, because of the alphabetical order of the author, Joel Osteen books right next to John Piper. Hey, one of these kids is doing his own thing, right? <laughs> one of these kids just doesn't belong. I'm not saying that Joel Osteen is not a nice man, that he's not an incredibly gifted communicator, but he does not preach the gospel. He doesn't preach the gospel. What he writes about is less than Christianity. It's not. It's a, if you have faith, God will bless you, make you healthy, make you wealthy, you'll have your best life now. That is not the gospel. Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted, when you suffer like I will suffer. Right? That's not the gospel. He's not preaching the hope we have in Jesus. Right? Unitarians talk a lot about Jesus too. But in the Unitarian church, Jesus is Mr. Rogers. He's a really nice guy. just wants you to be happy and do whatever you want. Believe whatever you want. Be whatever you want. That's, that's the Jesus there. But he's not the Jesus of the Bible. We need a lot more discernment. We desperately need more discernment for ourselves. We need this word, this letter, that we might be able to identify the deceivers among us. That we might stay rooted in the sure hope of the gospel. That we might know how we should respond when we encounter bizarro. We need to know it so we don't become bizarro. And John equips us here. He equips us here to identify Deceivers. We're going to go a little bit out of order, uh, but we're going to start in verse 7. Look there with me. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Right? He again makes this point. He, he said this, this basically the same thing back in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. We looked at it a few weeks ago. Many deceivers, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he specifically points out what makes these specific false prophets that he's talking about, what makes them false, what makes them deceivers. And he says it's because they deny the incarnation of Christ. They deny that Jesus came in the flesh, that he was God in the flesh. They deny that God became man and lived among us. Right? They don't deny Jesus. They talk about Jesus. They think Jesus is pretty neat. 
He's neato gang, right? We think he's pretty cool. But, but, but they deny that he's God, that he's fully God, fully man. Right? This group of false believers, false prophets, left the churches of Asia Minor in and around the area of Ephesus because they denied the Incarnation. They likely subscribed to an early form of Gnosticism, and basically in that faith of, of Gnostic, Gnostic faith, they, they think spiritual is good, the spiritual is holy, it is, it is perfect in the flesh, the physical is unredeemable. I mean, it is the filth, the, the just yuck of the world. It is pure evil, right? And so therefore, they could not reconcile God, whose spirit and perfectly good and holy, becoming man, because flesh is wicked and evil. So, so they denied the incarnation. Doesn't, doesn't mean that they denied Jesus, right? They thought Jesus was pretty great. They thought Jesus did some good things, but what they probably likely subscribed to was this idea that Jesus at his baptism was, was filled, like kind of spirit-filled, and like maybe had a little anointing upon him from God, and then he was able to do some really cool miracles and really cool things. But somewhere be- between the, you know, his ministry and going to the cross, the anointing left him, and he died simply as a man. They deny that. They denied that he was fully God, fully man, that he was eternally God, pre-existent Christ that we as Christians believe that Jesus is. It's not the same Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. And, and John says here that one who denies the incarnation, right, denies that, is such a one as the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay, so we talked about the antichrist a while back in this series, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the antichrist. Um, Okay? But I, I want to remind you just a few things real quick. The, the, the word Antichrist is only mentioned five times in the entire Bible. Do you know where? All of them are right here in 1 John and 2 John. Five times in four different verses. Uh, 1 John 2.18 mentions it twice, again in verse 22. Uh, 1 John 4.3 and then here in 2 John 7. And what John has in mind as he addresses the Antichrist in these texts is not some apocalyptic boogeyman, right? He's not thinking about that in these texts, but rather, as we bring all the texts together, what he's saying is he has in mind anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the God-man, fully God, fully man, who was incarnated, who came and lived the life we never could, died the death that we deserved in our place on the cross for our sins, and was resurrected from the grave, victorious over Satan, sin, and and death, right? The Jesus who accomplished our salvation, anyone who denies that in any part of that, any little segment of that, right? They deny the real Jesus, and that is who he calls the Antichrist. And he says, many of them are already here. Many people already deny the truth about the real Jesus. Many people already do that. And he makes it also clear that he's not talking about those outside of the church. He's not talking about people who subscribe to to Islam. He's not talking about, you know, Mormons. He's not talking about whatever. He's talking about people in the church. Maybe Mormons fit if they want to claim that they're Christians, okay? Uh, But he's talking about people who are in the church who claim to be believers in Christ, who claim to be followers of Christ, who are false believers, false teachers, right? They say that Jesus is just a way to know God. He's just a way. I mean, there are many ways. Right? There was a Christian pastor in our city who wrote a guest column in the paper this summer that said that, right? Jesus is just a way. He's not the way. John would say, 
that's a false prophet. That's an antichrist. That's false teaching. Right? They say Jesus is, was just a good teacher. He's just a good dude, a really good person. Right? That's false teaching. They, they, they claim to be a Christian and they say that. That's, that's an antichrist. That's a deceiver. That's a false teacher in the midst of the church. A bizarro. But John goes even further. Look down at verse 9. He says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Everyone who goes on ahead. What's he talking about? What's he talking about there? This is John's word for the progressives. Everyone who goes on ahead of the teachings of Christ. Everyone who goes on ahead. Leaders in the church who want to say, you know, I know what the Bible has to say, but man... I think we need to rethink that. I think maybe God got that part wrong, right? I think we need to reimagine, reinterpret, rediscover, and and redefine the plain reading of the Scriptures at various points, right? Now, we're not talking about the weird text that there there are some weird, like Jesse got to preach some weird stuff last week about the sin that does not lead to death. Like, we're not talking about those things. We're talking about wanting to redefine a plain reading of the Scriptures, we're just going gonna to go on ahead of the teachings of Christ, and we're going to say what we think it should say. We're going to leave the authority of the Bible behind, right? They, they say things like this. I know 2 Timothy 3.16. Right? I think it's up here on the screen. I know 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's the very words of God, not just like written by a bunch of dudes throughout a long period of time. But the very words of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But you know what? I think my reason, my understanding, trumps God's. I think he got it wrong. I think I know better than his word. And so I'm going to go on ahead of the teachings of Christ. Perhaps God got it wrong and he needs my help. He needs our help to redefine things for him. Redefine what he says. Right? The progressives, and the progressives are not just something that happened in the church now. They've been around since the church has been here. Right? People going on ahead, not abiding in the teaching of Christ, but rather are twisting and distorting the word of God to say whatever they want it to say. And here's the deal. Here's where it gets dangerous. Many of them possess equal gifts and abilities as true believers in Christ. Many of them possess equal or even, maybe even sometimes they're a little bit better gifted in some things than true pastors and teachers of the church. Many deceivers are supremely gifted communicators and storytellers, great authors and writers, right? They're charismatic leaders. They're fun. They're charming. They're nice. People are drawn to them, but it doesn't make them true, right? They're bizarros. This is the point here. That's why I brought it up. Bizarro, right? They possess the gifts and the abilities and maybe even the title sometimes of Christian pastor, ministry leader, author, speaker, whatever, but they don't possess the heart. They don't possess the heart of a true follower of Christ. 
combine that with our increasing lack of discernment, right? Our increasing biblical illiteracy amongst us in the church, and it makes them extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. You think I'm, I'm kidding you, maybe, right? I'm not. I can tell you, I, I have a, a long list of conversations that I've had with people through the years who will go to, now I'm not just talking about our church, like, our church is not the true church. You run into a pastor who thinks, like, their church is the only good church, like, run out the door. I'm not saying that. There are other good churches in this town, all right? And I, I know people have gone to several of the places that I would say are, are solid, like, they love the they love the Lord. They're preaching the gospel. They're, they're serving Christ. They're following Christ. And, and they'll go to some of those places, right? And they'll sit under that teaching. And then they'll go somewhere where I would say, absolutely, it's not preaching the gospel, right? Like, they are preaching a different gospel. And I'll, they'll come back and they'll be like, man, I went here and I went here. And man, it was the same thing. They both talked about Jesus. Right? It was the same thing. It was equally great in both places. And I'm like, Really? Right? Again, like they talk about Jesus at the Unitarian Church, but he's Mr. Rogers. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. Just because they mention Jesus doesn't make it the same thing. And here's what's really scary. It's not just like your average churchgoer that I'm talking about some of these conversations. It's ministry leaders. Pastors. Right? People who we look up to and follow who lack that amount of discernment to be able to tell the difference between True teaching, false teaching, like gospel and works-based garbage. You know? Ministry leaders who can't even discern a true church from a church that has discarded the gospel years and years ago. Years ago. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. And far too many of us just blindly follow. Right? Somebody gave me this book or... They're going there, so I should go there too, right? It must be great. And we don't even think. We don't even listen. We don't even, like, get in the Word and say, like, what are they saying? Does, is this the same, you know? And you should do that here, right? You should never take for granted what we say here either. Get in the Word for yourself and see what it says. Right? See where it lines up, where it doesn't, right? And then if there's something that you need to come, come and talk to us. Call us out. Like, we're not beyond sin in our own lives. Talk. Be discerning. Don't just follow blindly. The reason we follow blindly is that we're just too lazy. We're too lazy to be in the Word for ourselves. If we're in the Word, we can more easily identify the deceivers as they go on ahead of the teachings of Christ, then they stray from the truth of the Scriptures, from the words of God, breathed out by God Himself. Though many deceivers have gone out into the world, though they are among us, even though our discernment may be lacking, I want you to hear this. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to panic because our hope in Christ is unwavering. Right? Unwavering hope. Here's the good news, right? This is the beauty of the gospel, and it, it, it is good news. Our hope isn't found in your ability to be supremely discerning. Right? Our hope isn't found in the fact that you like, have like, your MDiv, and you're like a theological, theological whiz kid, right? It's not found in how much Bible Bowl trivia you, mention, you like, memorized when you were a kid. 
It, you're, our, our, our standing, our hope is not found in any of that. Now, I'm not saying we don't care about being in the Word. It's, I'm obviously not saying that. But I'm saying our identity is not found in all of that. Our hope is found in Christ and Christ alone. Right? It's found in Him. And we can have confidence. We can have peace knowing that. Look at verses 2 and 3. Right after he introduces the letter, he says, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. The truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. That is good news. That is good news. Who's he talking about? What is the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever? It's Jesus. John's talking about Jesus. Jesus abides in you, Christian, and he will be with you forever. That's good news. No matter what your failures have been, no matter how discerning or non-discerning you are, no matter how much of the Bible you know coming into today, no matter how long it's been since the last time you picked up a copy of God's Word, Jesus is with you, and He will be with you forever. He abides in you. So repent. Start reading. Abide in Him. Right? Know Him. Rest in Him. Right? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. Right? The truth that abides in us and will be with us forever is Jesus. Jesus is the truth, right? He says that. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Right? He's the truth. When you come to faith in Jesus, when you see your sin, right? when you're confronted with your sinfulness, with your need for redemption, your need for salvation and rescue, and you encounter Christ, right? And you encounter the love of Christ that he would live for you, that he would bleed out for you on the cross as your sin, that he would rise again victorious, that you might have a life with him, that you, you might have a resurrection of your own in him. When you encounter that and you say, I, I want to leave my sin, I want to trust Christ, Christ abides in you, right? He abides in you. You make your home in Jesus. He makes his home in you. And nothing can take that from you. Nothing can take that from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. He's with you forever. No matter what you do, no matter what's done to you, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. His grace will be with you, John says. His mercy will be with you. His peace will be with you. Now, this isn't like a free pass, right? That we just like, all right, so who cares about reading the Word, being discerning? Like, it's good, right? No, but it's a reminder that your standing with God is not built upon your knowledge, your abilities. It's built upon Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's the foundation of that is where your standing is. That is unshakable. It's unwavering. And where there is failure on our part, right? Where you come in today with failure in this area of your life, where there's a lack, there is, you're met today with an abundance of grace, an abundance of mercy, an abundance of peace to offer forgiveness, to offer renewed connection, to offer a, a deeper abiding in Christ moving forward. Your identity isn't where you were when you walked in here. It's, it's in Christ. It's in Him. And though we live in times that seem to be increasingly challenging for Christians in our culture, right? and I think they're going to get more challenging as we move forward, 
And just so you know, probably a lot of you aren't aware of this, but even here in, in Bloomington, Indiana University has, is trying to enact a policy with all the student organizations that basically threatens the ability of religious groups, of really all faiths, if they want to honor the convictions of their faith, from being able to freely practice those faith and have a student group and have access to campus, right? They've issued this policy that basically, you know, you could have a Jewish, Jewish person who, who cannot be denied wanting to be a leader in the Muslim campus ministry, right? And even though that's the case, it seems very, very much so like the language and, and the, the wording and the vibe that we are getting is that it's really meant to be for Christians, right? That's who we really want to kind of police and kind of shut down, right? You need to be praying about that. That directly affects, uh, I mean, not, I mean we, we definitely benefit from some access to campus that we've had. We won't continue to do that because we won't welcome ourselves to lawsuits and that sort of thing that might damage our church. But it really directly impacts our, our friends here at Campus Outreach and, and their access to campus, some of the things they're doing. It affects a lot of the other campus ministry groups that we have represented within this church. So we need to be praying about that. But you know what? That's probably just the beginning of a lot of things that we're going to face. That's probably just the beginning. There will be more persecution, more suffering, more deceivers will be headed our way. And you know what? Our hope remains unwavering in Christ. Right? If we have to, like, gather in a park to have worship, if we have to, like, start meeting in homes to have worship, right? Like, you know, you know that happens around the world, Right? And you know, in those places around the world, like China, where the church is completely underground and illegal, it's exploding. It's exploding. It's exploding. And all we need to be able to endure, all we need to be able to identify and respond appropriately to deceivers in the church that we encounter is found in Jesus and our hope in Him. We have all that we need in Him. Grace and mercy and peace will be with you from God the Father and from Jesus Christ His Son. And that's what, that's what we read in verse 3, to which John adds these words at the very end, in truth and love. In truth and love. And what John seems to be saying here, alluding to, is that the sure hope that we have in Christ, the sure foundation that we have in Jesus Christ will show itself in our lives as we walk in and abide in truth and love, that our lives will be increasingly marked with this just living in, abiding in, and living out of sharing truth and love together, married together. A life rooted in the hope of the gospel, rooted in Jesus that possesses grace and mercy and peace will lead us to abide in truth and love. And that's our response That's our response to the deceivers. That's how we prepare for them. That's how we respond to them. We abide in truth and love, and we respond out of that. That's how we prepare. That's how we prepare ourselves to be able to identify them, abiding in the truth of God, knowing the Scriptures for yourself. We need to read the Word, church. Right? Not just gather on Sundays and have somebody tell you the word. And so you can, like, like a little baby bird, just like, like get the regurgitated, you know. That's, it's gross, isn't it? Like, you know that's how birds feed their young? Like, the mama chews it up, 
and then like, I'm going to spit it in your mouth, right? That's what happens on Sunday morning, right? I'm, I'm, or whoever's preaching is, we're chewing up this word, we're prepping on this word, we're letting the word hit our heart, and hopefully it hits our heart first. It's what I pray every week, right? It hits our heart, and then we're, we're, we're preaching it, we're sharing it, and what we're doing is we're spitting out all the stuff we just chewed up all week right into your mouth, right? That's not how you want to eat all the time. It's how baby birds eat, right? Not a bunch of baby birds. Grow up and be men and women of the Lord who read and chew their own food, right? Read the Word. Abide in the Word of God. Sorry about that. It's just it's not, not in the notes. It just happened. Um, whew, all right. Where were we? Um, truth and love. That informs our response. So, so John explains what this looks like. He, he mentions in verse 4 that he's encountered members of this church he's writing to, and he's like, I've seen them. I've seen them walking in the truth. I'm encouraging you. I've seen some of your brothers and sisters walking in the truth. It was beautiful. It was good. And then he goes on and he gives this encouragement, verses 5 and 6. And now I ask you, dear lady, the church, I ask you, church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments, right? This is love. Not that we're just nice, but that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it, right? We see John, again, returning these familiar themes that we've been looking at again and again throughout these letters of loving one another, right? Walking in obedience to God and being rooted in sound doctrine, being rooted in a sound understanding of who God is, of, of how he saves us, how he works, how he does what he does. Truth and love. Truth and love. Both of them together. Not just one, right? His command isn't just go around and crush people with the truth that you know. Right? Just whack them over the head, beat them down with the truth. That's not what he says, right? But neither is his command just to love people by just being nice and affirming everything about them, always like, hey, that's great, whatever you want to do, do whatever you want to do, yeah, just believe what you want to believe. No, that's not real love, right? It's together, truth and love, love informed by the truth, truth spoken, informed by love, right? Calls the church to love deeply and truly with a love that has been informed by the truth of God's words, his commandments, he says. His commandments, that's love, walking in obedience to his commandments, living and loving out of those commandments, sharing the hope that we have out of that truth. He echoes this again in verse 9, right? Just right after describing the deceivers as those who don't abide in the teaching of Christ, who've gone out ahead, right, and therefore don't have God, John then says, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Again, abiding in the truth, the truth of Christ's teaching, the truth of God's word, truth and love together. They cannot be divorced from one another. They're married, right? They cannot be divorced from one another. The truth informs what it means to love. It directs us in how we love, how we carry out that love. Conversely, love informs how we deliver the truth, how we share the truth with others. True love doesn't lead us to hide the truth from other people. It doesn't lead us to, to run in the other direction and just like, I'll just be quiet now and I'll never speak up and tell anyone. But neither does it lead us to just crush people with it. Truth and love. And John gives some clear instruction 
on how we are to respond to the bizarros when we encounter them. Look at verse 10. Right? As we abide in truth and love, this is what happens. If anyone comes to you who does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Really? Right? To understand what he's saying, let me explain some just quick background historically. So, first century church, right? The apostles, the true teachers of the gospel, are going out and about to various towns like Paul, all of those guys, going, and what they do is they go from city to city. They preach the gospel, they establish new believers, they plant churches, then they raise up, train up, and install godly qualified leaders over those churches, right? This isn't something that we created and established. This was God's mission. Right? His mission of reaching the world was church planting. And that's what the apostles do. And they would go from city to city doing this. And as they would go, what they would be dependent upon is they'd be dependent upon the hospitality of people in that city. Specifically, the hospitality of believers, possibly the new believers that they're converting or believers who may have been there already, depending on where they're at and what time frame we're talking about. Right? To welcome them in and say, you can stay with me. You can stay in my house for the next year, two years month, whatever it is, you know, and and we'll feed you, we'll care for you, we'll provide shelter for you. That's what they were doing. Likewise, false teachers, false prophets were doing the exact same thing, traveling from city to city, promoting their false gospel. And when they would get there, they they too were dependent upon the hospitality of others, right, to welcome them into their home, to give them food, give them shelter, give them a home base from which to operate out of. Right? And perhaps maybe John says he's got, he's got wind that this, this group may be headed to this church. Maybe that's why he writes the letter. I'm, I'm stepping away. That's speculation. Regardless, what's his instruction? What's his instruction when they encounter one of these bizarro false teachers? What should a Christian do? John says to lovingly, in truth, right, tell these fools to get to stepping. Right? Not this house. Next one. Not here. Get out of town, right? Lovingly shut the door in their face. Do not welcome them into your home. Do not give them any greeting. We give them a hug. We give them a high five, fist bump, whatever, right? Nothing. Aren't we supposed to be hospitable, right? Are we really supposed to be, ain't nobody got time for you, right? Get on out of here, Right? Is that what Jesus did? Like, Jesus was pretty hospitable. Well, I mean, isn't the loving thing to do to love on people, welcome them, and uh, befriend them? Not always. Not always. Okay, remember, we're talking about false teachers within the church. We're not talking about the unbelieving neighbors and friends in our families, in our neighborhoods, uh, down the street from us who come in from out of town, and new students will be coming in who don't know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about people within the church who claim faith in Christ who are deceivers. John says, no, you do not welcome them into your home. You do not give them greeting. You do not share the stage with them. You do not affirm what they're doing in any way, shape, or form. Jesus himself, right? Jesus absolutely with, with sinners, with those who don't know, yeah, we're all sinners, but with those who are outside the people of God, what did he do? Like, he got accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he spent his time in the thick of it with them, befriending them, spending time, probably had a drink, just in case you're like weird about alcohol, Jesus probably had a drink, that's why he got accused of being a drunkard, right? Got accused of being a glutton because he's eating with them, 
celebrating with them, partying with them, right? Not in a sinful way. Jesus never got drunk, didn't go over the top, but he was with them in the thick of it, absolutely, with people outside the covenant community. Was Jesus' hospitality towards those who might be wolves, right? False teachers who come in to the church. Well, this is what Jesus says. It would be better for some false teacher who might lead my children astray to have a large millstone tied around their neck and for them to be thrown into the deepest depths of the sea. That's Jesus' hospitality to a wolf in the church. It'd be better for you than for me to get my hands on you than for somebody to grab you, throw a large rock around your neck, and throw you into the deepest depths of the ocean. That would be a better end for you, right? Yes, we are to love and show hospitality. Specifically, hospitality means hospitality to folks outside the church who are not believers, befriending them, welcoming them into our homes, building relationships, sharing the gospel, connecting them to community. But those who claim to be believers, who show themselves to be deceivers, bizarros, we cannot, we must not welcome them in. Why? Look at verse 11. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. You can't associate, you can't show hospitality because if you do so with bizarro, that makes you a bizarro too. You've just affirmed, you just endorsed their false teaching, their deception in the church. Right? To welcome them into your home makes you a part of their wicked works. To recommend their book someone else makes you a part of the deception to share the stage to participate in worship with a false teacher false church that claims christ but is not preaching christ makes you a part of their false teaching the only loving thing to do is to dissociate disassociate yourself with them to refuse to partner to call out the deception call them to repentance and if they refuse close the door Again, we're talking about those out inside the church, those who claim faith in Christ. We're not talking about other faiths. We're not talking about those outside the community of faith who don't know Jesus, who are not Christians. Don't shut the door on them. Loving hospitality there. But in the church, when a deceiver shows himself, when they've gone on ahead the teachings of Christ, we are to lovingly rebuke, call to repentance, and withdraw Right? Show them the door. The reality is, is when it comes to false teachers in the church, false churches in our midst, it would be better for us to partner with and serve our city, to serve like the homeless, to serve the poor, with, with Muslims and atheists. That would be a better partnership than it would be for us to partner with some false church that doesn't preach the gospel. And what if you've already done this, right? What, what if, if you passed along uh, one of those, you know, big smiley tooth books to somebody? Um, or you shared in worship with false teaching, right? Remember, your hope is unwavering. Your hope in Jesus is unwavering. There is grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness in Christ that's always with you. Your identity isn't in your failure. It's in Him. So what do you do? You repent. You repent. And you trust in the grace of Christ. You trust that you are adopted son, adopted daughter of Christ, fully welcomed in. That Christ abides in you and you abide in him. 
And you rest in that. You abide in that. Your identity is not in your failure. It's in Jesus. Repent and trust in Him. And learn from it. Grow from it. Right? Grow in discernment for the future. These are like increasingly crazy times for the church in our culture that we are living in. Right? The culture is shifting rapidly away from the church. Right? rapidly, rapidly away. I heard another pastor say this in a sermon, and I think he might be right, right? He's, he basically said that he thinks basically in the next five years even, there may be little to no benefit society-wise for a Christian, right? Little or no benefit culturally for you to be a Christian in this culture that we live in. It's rapidly shifting. And I say maybe that's a good thing, right? That might that might be a good thing for the church. That there would be no cultural benefit to being a Christian. Because maybe that means we'll love Jesus for who Jesus is. And not for what we think Jesus can do for us. What doors he can open for us. What opportunities. Like, that this makes me look like a good person because I go to church. That stuff will start to erode away. Right? And it'll be about, do you love Jesus or do you not? Are you in for the gospel? Like, not, not like, uh, like I'm sort of in, like, because it's a good way to spend my Sunday morning. But like, are you all in for the gospel? For the spread of the fame of Christ or not? I think it could be a good thing. Right? You look at the way the world is working in the global church, and, and Christianity move, always moves away from power. It moves away from political power and, and prestige. And it always goes in the opposite direction. And so the global south exploding with churches, exploding with new believers, exploding in places where it's not legal to be a Christian. Maybe a little persecution, which will be pretty minor in comparison, would be a little good for us. Right? We can stop pretending and increasingly just live all out for the sake of Jesus. I know, all I know is that no matter what happens, no matter what happens going forward, no matter what deceivers we encounter in our city, in our church, what they say, Jesus does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The rescue that he accomplished for you does not change, right? Your standing in Christ does not change. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Your hope of having life right now through faith in Jesus does not change, your hope of future glory with Jesus does not change. Like, he's still coming back. He still is Lord. It doesn't matter. Like, he is not surprised by anything that's happening around the globe or in our city. He's not surprised. And he will no less work to save his people. And he invites us to no less join in with him, no matter what, to be a part of that. No matter what, His grace and His mercy and His peace will be with you if you abide in Him and He abides in you. Let that move you to abide in truth and love. To abide in the truth of His Word. To abide in the love of God that He has loved you. That your very worst, Christ would love you and pursue you. That's how we love others, right? Those who don't know Christ, we love them. We welcome them in a relationship. We welcome them in a community. False teachers within the church, we can't associate. We cannot associate there. Will God move you to be increasingly discerning, increasingly loving, 
And may we live all out for the sake of the gospel, right? May our hearts beat to see the lost in our city meet Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? That's why we're here, I hope, is because Jesus saved us, and we know that transformed everything, and we want to be a part of seeing that happen in the lives of others. May our hearts beat to see people meet Jesus and to know the life that we have in Jesus, not when we die, but right now, right? The life, the joy, the peace, the grace, the mercy, the hope that we have in Christ right now. May that be our heart for our city. And may we refuse to settle for anything less than the gospel, the whole gospel, nothing but the gospel. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to gather. And though this is kind of a hard, hard word this morning, we thank you for its truth and we thank you for your providence in, in mapping it out that we would we'd be sitting here today to hear it. Um, Lord, would you move in our hearts? Would you lead us to repentance and faith where we need to repent and trust? For those of us who've strayed from your word, for those of us who ha- have been lacking in discernment, would you lead us to repent of our laziness, of our carelessness, and, and to move forward in faith to dig into your word? For those of us who don't know you, would, would we encounter your love today and, and repent of our sin and trust in you and no life, no hope that is unwavering and sure? We pray for our city. We pray for the campus of IU. And we pray that no matter what happens there, we know that you are still God, Lord Jesus, that you will still save, that you will still work. Help us to do what's appropriate, to respond in the ways that are appropriate, whatever that might be. But Lord, help us to find ways to continue to pour out your love, pour out your grace, pour out the truth of your gospel to share it with others in our, in our city that you would save, that you would receive the glory. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue to respond and worship this morning as we come to the table and share in the Lord's Supper. May this be a time to be renewed in, in truth and love. All right, believers, you're invited to come forward, break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. We offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. Wine's in the glasses marked with twine. We have a station here in the front, station in the back. If you're on this side, you come forward. That side, you go towards the back, out the doors, and kind of peel back in. Um, But let's continue just to respond and worship this morning.